Section 7 of The Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author, edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1 Discourse 5. Of Governments Free and Arbitrary, more especially that of the Caesars. Part 2. Section 8. A Representation of the Torments and Horrors Under Which Tiberius Lived. What joy, what tranquillity did Tiberius reap from his great and unaccountable sovereignty? Did it exempt him from disquiet, or could all his efforts, all the terrors of his power, prevent or remove his own? Did his numerous armies protect him from the assaults of fear and apprehension? Did he sleep the sounder for his praetorian bands? Did the rocks of Capri, hardly accessible to men, keep off those horrors of mind which haunted him at Rome and on the continent? Or rather, with all the éclat of empire, with all his policy and all his guards, was he not the most miserable being in his dominions? Doubtless he was. Other particulars, the most obnoxious and threatened, had but some things and some persons to fear. Tiberius dreaded all men and everything. Was his power unlimited? So was his misery. The more he made others suffer, the faster he multiplied his own torments. He himself confessed that all the anger of the deities could not doom him to more terrible anguish than that under which he felt himself perishing daily. Imagine this great prince, this sovereign of Rome, in hourly fear of secret assassins, daily dreading and expecting the news of armies revolted, a new emperor created, and himself deposed. Imagine him fixed upon a high rock, and watching there from day to day, with a careful eye and an anxious and boding heart, for signals from the continent, whether he must stay or fly. Imagine him every moment ready to commit himself to the waves and tempests, and to escape whither he could for life and shelter. Imagine him, even after a conspiracy suppressed, lurking for nine months together in one lodge under such terrors as not to dare to venture an airing even in his beloved Capri, however walled with rocks and defended with guards. In short, he feared everything but to do evil, which yet was the sole cause of his fears. Such was his situation and life, and such the blessing of lawless might. To Tiberius, not his imperial fortune, not his gloomy and inaccessible solitude, could ensure repose, nor keep him from feeling, nor even from avowing the rack in his breast, and the avenging furies that pursued him. His death, too, was like his life and reign, tragical and bloody. Section 9. The Terrible Operation of Lawless Power Upon the Minds of Princes, and How It Changes Them. Tiberius was an able man. He had talents for affairs. He had eminent sufficiency in war. During the Commonwealth he would have well supported the dignity of a senator. He would have filled the first offices of the state. He would have probably been zealous for public liberty. 
He had, even under Augustus, while he was yet a subject, acquired a signal name and estimation. Nay, it is likely he might have left behind him a high reputation and applause, for he had art enough to have hid or suppressed the ill qualities which were naturally in him, so that he might have lived happy and admired and died in renown. But being, unhappily for himself and his country, invested with power without control, he let loose all his passions, and he— who might have proved an excellent and useful member of a free state, became a prince altogether merciless and pernicious, a terrible tyrant, void of natural affection for his own blood and family, void of all regard and tenderness for his people, and possessed with intense hate towards the senate and nobility. One of his discernment was not to be deceived by flattery. He knew that, whatever submissions and even prostrations were made him, the yoke of sovereignty was grating and grievous to the Romans, and he sought revenge upon their persons for hating his usurpation. This conduct made him more hated, and this hatred enraged him so that, at last, renouncing all shame and throwing away his beloved arts of dissimulation, he commenced, as it were, an open enemy to his people surrendered himself over to every act of cruelty, and to every abomination, even to rapaciousness and plunder, a vice to which for a long time he seemed to have no bias. But what is not to be apprehended from power without control, and who is to be trusted with it, when a man of such strong parts and long experience as Tiberius was so entirely mastered and perverted by it? It is a task too mighty for the soul of man, and fit for none but God, who cannot change, cannot act passionately, cannot be mistaken, and is omnipresent. There are few instances of men who have not been corrupted and intoxicated with it, and many of whom the highest hopes were conceived have degenerated notoriously under it. When men are once above fear of punishment, they soon grow to be above shame. Besides, the genius and abilities of men are limited, but their passions and vanity boundless, hence so few can be perfectly good, and so many are transcendently evil. They mistake good fortune for great merit, and are apt to rise in their own conceit, as high at least as fortune can raise them. Galba was, in the opinion of all men, worthy of empire, and that option would have ever continued, had he never been tried and Vespasian was, till then, the only instance of an emperor by power changed for the better. Section 10. The wretched fears accompanying the possession of arbitrary power, exemplified in Caligula and the other Roman emperors. Nor was this anguish and these fears peculiar to Tiberius. His successors felt them eminently, as did every one who reigned as he reigned. Caligula was so haunted by inward horrors, and his imagination so terrified, that he became almost a stranger to sleep, and used to roam about the palace while others slept, afraid of the night and invoking the return of day. Upon an alarm from Germany he prepared to run away from Rome, and was always provided with exquisite poison against an exigency. Claudius scarce lived a moment of his reign free from affrights and suspicions nor was there any accident so trivial, or any man, woman, or slave, or child so contemptible, as not to dismay him, and set him upon sanguinary precautions and punishments. He was several times almost frightened out of his sovereignty, and willing to creep away into safety and solitude. 
even before the Senate, which upon the sight of a dagger he had summoned in great haste and earnestness, the poor unmanly wretch burst into tears and howling, bewailed his perilous condition, that in no place or circumstance could he be out of the way of danger. His whole life was governed by fears, and his fears by his wives and freedmen, hence his excessive cruelty, according to the measure of his own timidity, or of their ambition, vindictiveness, and rapacity. The horrors of Nero's guilt never forsook him. They were sometimes so violent that every joint about him trembled. He dreaded his mother's ghost as much as he had her living spirit, and made doleful complaints that the Furies pursued him with stripes and rage and burning torches, and that he was alarmed with horrid shrieks and groans from his mother's tomb. What else did Heliogabalus apprehend but a violent death, when he went always provided with a silken halter and a golden poniard as expedients to escape death by the hand of an enemy? For the like purpose Caracalla made himself a copious provision of poisons. This barbarous parasite was wont to complain that the ghost of his father and that of his brother by him murdered terrified and pursued him with drawn swords. So sorely did the bloody horrors of their crimes and infamy haunt these men of blood and become their executioners. What availed their power and armies against the alarms of their conscience? Could all their titles and might, all the guards at their gate, scare away reflection, or rescue them from the agonies and gorings of their own breasts? Section 11 What it is that constitutes the security and glory of a prince— and how a prince and people become estranged from each other. What then is it that a prince may rely on for the security of his person and the quiet of his soul? Here the opinion of a great and good prince, Marcus Antonius, delivered to his friends and counsellors just before he expired. Verily, it is neither the influence of revenue and treasures, nor the multitude of guards that can uphold a prince, or assure him of obedience, unless with the duty of obedience the zeal and affections of his people do concur. Surely only long and secure is the reign of such a one as by actions of benignity stamps upon the hearts of his people the impressions of love, not those of fear by acts of cruelty. He adds that a prince has nothing to fear from his people, as long as their obedience flows from inclination, and is not constrained by servitude, and that subjects will never refuse obedience, when they are not treated with contumely and violence. A man who means no ill, would not seek the power to do it, and he who seeks that power, or has it, will be eternally suspected to mean no good. Now the only way to obviate such suspicion is to act by known rules of law. He who rules by consent is obnoxious to no blame. Such restraint may probably at some times keep a just prince from doing good, but it certainly withholds a bad one from doing much greater mischief. An arbitrary prince who can do what he will is for ever liable to be suspected of willing all that he can, hence his people mistrust him. Hence his indignation for their mistrust, and hence the root of eternal jealousy and uneasiness between him and them. The people likewise expect complacence from the prince, expect to have their sentiments and humours considered, while the prince probably thinks that they have no right to form any judgment of public matters, or to make any demands upon him. But, 
on the contrary, requires of them blind reverence and obedience to his authority, and acquiescence in his superior conduct and skill, that all his doings should pass for just, himself for a person altogether sacred and unaccountable, and his words for laws. If their behaviour towards him does not happen to square exactly, with these his sovereign notions and high conceit of himself, he will be apt to think, or some officious flatterer will be ready to persuade him, his royal authority is set at naught, the people are revolted, and what remains but that they take arms. To punish, therefore, their disobedience, he proceeds to violence, and exercises real severity for imaginary guilt. Mischief is prolific. Violence in him begats resentment in them, the people murmur and exclaim, the prince is thence provoked, and studies vengeance. When one act of vengeance is resented and exposed, as it ever will be, more will follow. Thus things go on. Affection is not only lost, but irrecoverable on either side. Hatred is begun on both, and prince and people consider themselves no longer as magistrate and subject, but one another as enemies. Hence, perhaps, Caligula's inhuman wish, that he could murder all his people at a blow. The sequel of all this is easy to be guessed. He is continually destroying them, they are continually wishing him destroyed. Section 12. How nearly it behoves a prince to be beloved and esteemed by his subjects. The terrible consequences of their mutual mistrust and hatred. How much does it import princes to preserve the good opinion of their people? When it is once lost, it is scarce ever to be recalled. When once they come to believe ill of their prince, there is nothing so ill that they will not believe, as in the instance of Tiberius, of whom things the most improbable and horrid were believed. It is hardly possible for any merit, the most genuine and exalted, to preserve popular favour for a long time accidents and disasters will be falling in, to sour the spirits of the populace, or some fresh merit, more new or more glaring, may appear, and lessen or intercept their admiration of the other. Or the same person may not always have the same opportunities to oblige them, so that the best care and conduct can only serve to retain it to a certain degree, and this by good conduct is certainly and always to be done. But when the reputation of the prince with his subjects is entirely gone, something worse than the bare want of it will ensue. Between a prince's forfeiting the public affection, and his incurring the public hatred, there is scarce any medium, and even that medium is a terrible one, since it is to be scorned, as not much better than to be hated, and often infers it. Would a prince live in security, ease, and credit? Let him live and rule, by a standard certain and fixed, that of laws, nor grasp at more than is given him. Many, by seeking too much, have lost all, and forfeited their crown, through the wantonness and folly of loading it with false and invidious ornaments. While nothing would serve them but lawless power, even their legitimate authority grew odious and was rent from them. They set their people the example of assuming what was none of theirs, to do acts of violence in defence of violated laws, to judge for themselves, and to sanctify by the title of right whatever they could accomplish by force. Rather than live upon bad terms, people will be apt to make their own terms, and think no fealty is due, where no sooth is kept. Who would not rejoice more in a free gift than in plunder? For such is the difference between power conferred 
and power usurped. What new prerogative acquired to the crown, or what new revenue can make amends for the hearts of the people estranged and embittered? This is such a loss as no acquisition, no pomp of power whatever, can atone for. We have seen under what gloom, affright, and despair the Caesars lived and swayed, though their sway was without check and bounds. Machiavel says that when a prince has once incurred the public hate, there is no person nor thing which he ought not to dread. He who does no ill fears none, but such as are continually creating terrors and calamities to others have abundant reason to be under continual apprehensions themselves. How much more desirable, how much more just and easy and safe is the condition of a prince who lives and rules by laws over a free people by their own consent? Both people and laws are his guard, and what secures them secures him. They see that he loves them, and he is conscious that they ought to love him. This is government and the effects of it, not the triumph of boundless arrogance or folly, not the insults of one over all, nor, consequently, his distrust of them, nor their slavish dread of him, but the equal administration of eternal righteousness and stated laws, an endearing intercourse of fatherly care and protection, and of filial gratitude and duty. How amiable must it be, how refreshing to a generous spirit, to oblige and solace a whole people, to have a whole people adore and bless him! What master of slaves, even the highest and most unbounded master, can boast so much of himself and his slaves? The grandeur of such a prince is all false and tinsel, painted and hollow. He is never secure, because he is not innocent. He is not innocent, because he is an oppressor. To rule by mere will is to rule by violence, and violence is war. He who puts himself in a state of hostility with his subjects invites hostility from them, as did the late King James, who, having no confidence in the laws which he had violated, nor in his people, whom he had oppressed, put himself in a posture of war against his subjects, so that when they too had recourse to arms, they did but stand in their own defence. They had no quarrel to that King James, who had taken an oath to rule by law. But when that king assumed another person— and, in spite of oaths and laws, would oppress and spoil, they who owed this man of violence no allegiance, opposed might to might, since he would abide by no law. It was not their prince, therefore, that they resisted, but their enemy and spoiler. He, in truth, had no more right to what the law gave him not than the great Turk had. They therefore opposed not an English monarch, but an invader and a tyrant nor do I know of any people who threw off their monarchy wantonly, and if they did it through oppression, the oppressor might blame himself. Had he conquered his subjects, what would he have gained but the detestable glory of a triumphant oppressor, of seeing a rich country reduced by servitude to poverty, and of bearing the curses of a free people oppressed? Whoever has beheld the condition of a great neighbouring kingdom, naturally the finest in Europe, has seen in the condition of the inhabitants, poor, pale, nasty, and naked, what genuine glory their princes have reaped by reducing all the laws of their country into one short one, that of royal will and pleasure. Section 13 
Public happiness only then certain, when the laws are certain and inviolable. It is allowed that amongst the Roman emperors there were some excellent ones. But was not all this chance? They might have proved like the rest, who were incredibly mischievous and vile. They had nothing but their own inclinations to restrain them. And is human society to depend for security and happiness upon uncertain inclinations and will? They were good by conformity to the laws, as laws are the only defence against such as are bad. The bad ones had almost sunk the empire to a chaos before there appeared one prince of tolerable capacity and virtue to retrieve it. Insomuch that Vespasian declared it to be absolutely necessary to raise a fund of above three hundred millions of money, of our money, purely to save the state from absolute ruin and dissolution. After Domitian there succeeded five good reigns, during which law and righteousness prevailed, and the emperors took nothing, neither power nor money, but what laws long established gave them, and professed to derive everything from the law, and to occupy nothing in their own name. But, as the emperor might still be a tyrant if he would, that wild prince Commodus resumed the old measures of violence, and, becoming a second Caligula, dissipated and overturned in a few years all the treasure, wise provisions, and establishments, contrived and gathered by his predecessors during the best part of a century. To conclude, if princes would never encroach, subjects would hardly ever rebel, and if the former knew that they would be resisted, they would not encroach. Every subject knows that if he resist against law, he will die by law. It is certain mischief to both prince and people to assert slavish doctrines, and no security to either, since nature oppressed will depart from passive principle. But to assert the reasonableness of vindicating violated laws is no more than asserting that laws ought not to be violated, as they ever will be where there is no penalty annexed. The least attempt upon public liberty is therefore alarming. If it is suffered once, it will be apt to be repeated often. A few repetitions create a habit. Habit claims prescription and right. Such also is the nature of man, that when public affairs are once disconcerted, it is hard, sometimes impossible, to restore them to their first firmness. Numbers become engaged in the corruption, and will be trying all their arts and power to support it. Where it grows extensive and general, public authority will probably espouse and defend it, and even where that authority is against it, the torrent may be so strong as to bear down authority itself. How many great and good men have fallen themselves while they strove to restore the state? Attempts to reform the soldiery, to reform the clergy, to reform the civil administration, have often drawn down a tragical doom upon the authors of them. It is much easier to prevent than to cure. End of Discourse 5, Part 2